where Hollywood hides, here's Bob and Suzanne. A chicken joke. I'm Mrs. Cleaver. From Television City in Hollywood. Boy, the way Glenn Miller plays. We can rebuild him. We have the technology. I don't mind. Nanu, nanu. Baby, you're the great. Here comes the judge. Small cowbell. Matt Basher. There's anything wrong with that. And now for something completely different. There's no business like show business like no business. Welcome to Where Hollywood Hides. This is podcast episode number 33. My name is Bob McCullough. Hi, Bob. My name is Suzanne Herrera McCullough. Hi, Suzanne. Hi. Welcome to number 33. Thank you very much. Today we have a really great conversation with an old friend of mine, Bruce Salen. If you remember, I met Bruce when I was pitching a show called Tag Team. Yes, with some pretty good wrestlers. Yeah, we Bruce and I got together on a concept, a kind of a three-word pitch, which was wrestlers become cops. And Bruce will tell you how that all came about. But we wound up working very closely with Rowdy Roddy Piper and Jesse the Body Ventura, both of whom have gone on to pretty incredible careers. Roddy has one of the number, the world's uh, most popular podcasts out there. He's done a lot of acting since then. And Jesse has become the governor of all things. Politics. Very political. Uh, and he's written a number of books about his political views. Uh, but we had a great time with both of those guys. We produced a terrific pilot that actually got a network pickup. And you'll hear Bruce in our conversation refer to what happened thereafter? It Bruce, was one of the more devastating right. showbiz stories we've had. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bruce is a guy. He he produced over thirty movies. He was a network exe- one of the youngest network executives of all time, and he's worked with stars like Brooke Shields and Ron Howard, Bruce Dern, Jack Lemmon, Bob Foxworth. The list goes on. Lindsay Wagner, and he has some great stories, some great perspectives, and we're about to hear a guy with incredible energy. I want to remind everybody, go to the website at wherehollywoodhides.com and take a look at our book. You'll enjoy it. It's full color, hardcover, the ultimate gift book, the ultimate celebrity souvenir. And uh, the book's also available on the website. You can order directly at wherehollywoodhides.com or go to amazon.com where you'll find the book for immediate delivery as well. So let's uh, join Bruce Allen. Here's Bruce. Bruce Allen, welcome to Where Hollywood Hides. Thrilled to have you with us. Uh, Welcome, Bruce. Uh, you and Suzanne haven't seen each other in a while, but uh, she has fond memories of uh, when you and I worked together on a show called Tag Team, starring Roddy Piper and Jesse the Body Ventura. But we'll get into that. Uh, you wait, are wait, 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 wait. Many- I have, I have fond. Hold on a second. I have fond memories too. Great. My main fond memory is what the heck was such a hot, terrific, bright woman doing with you? <laughs> Yeah, and people ask me that every week. Well, you've done something right, my friend. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Bruce, you're a guy who has had many careers, uh, and we want to we get into all of that, but I want to really start at the very beginning, if you can, and that is, you know, not everybody winds up in show business or even breaks in. At what point in your life did you ever consider show business as a career? You know, it's interesting. I remember it very distinctly. I was a freshman in college. I was 16 turning 17. I was very young in college. And I went to UC San Diego for my first year of college. I did a lot of rambling around in my college years. And I took an introduction to film class by the legendary writer and film critic, Manny Farber, who wrote, um, I think the famous book was called American Cinema. 
And it was the most bizarre class. I've taken a number of film classes over the years, but his was the most bizarre I'd ever taken. So I was a freshman in college at UC San Diego, and this class was really weird. First of all, he showed, okay, gulp, foreign films. Up to that point, I'd never seen a, t- a subtitle. Wow. He would never show, the classes were a good two hours long, he never would show an entire film. At most, he would show one reel. Now, again, this is in the old days when they had to be projected. And that reel would rarely be the first one. It would be arbitrarily somewhere in the middle. He also did something that was just insane. He'd show a reel backwards. What do you mean backwards? I mean, literally, he would show it backwards. So, like, you were rewinding, and it forced you to look at film technique when you couldn't listen, because backwards there was no sound. Interesting. So... He just opened my eyes. He also showed incredibly weird, occasionally gross stuff. Like Louis Bunuel, you know, the famous, I think, Spanish filmmaker, did this horrible thing. I forgot what it was called, where he cuts an eyeball on camera. It was really avant-garde in its day. That film was Le Chien Andalou, I think. Exactly, exactly. Okay, he showed what, in those days, would have been passed off as X-rated stuff occasionally, which was really shocking to this still virgin-esque, a uh, 16-year-old. So um, he just opened my eyes to film. And my fantasy at that point was to be a, to make movies. I, I ended up in TV, as you well know, Bob, but my, I wanted to make movies. I learned who John Ford was. I learned who the great legendary American director, Frank Capra, who I had the pleasure of actually meeting later in life on a flight that also included Audrey Hepburn, uh, Richard Harris, uh, and a bunch, and, uh, Oh, God, what's his wow. name? Another great star. Richard, uh, oh, I can't remember his name. I'll remember later. But to me, the, my idol was Frank Capra. Um, and I got to sit down next to him. I think it was the MGM Grand back in the old days when we used to fly first class. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to sit down next to Capra, who's my favorite filmmaker of all time. Also, I think, wrote the best, best autobiography uh, called The Name Above the Title, which was uh, just an enchanting book about his uh, career in showbiz. So that's where I got my uh, my inspiration. How I got in is a whole other story. Was your family in show business? Yeah, my dad was a dental technician, and he once made Joan Blondell's dentures. <laughs> oh, that's a that's so, a very strong. Uh, we connection. were. I was. I had nepotism up the uh, wazoo. We were. We were connected. <laughs> my dad was a dental technician, and he did once make her um, uh, dentures. I remember, or partial, or some such thing like that. But no, I had no connections whatsoever. In fact, I was the only member of my family up to that point that actually graduated college. My mother and, went to one year. And, and did you uh, grow up in California? Yes, I did have that advantage, as your husband did. So you had really no family connection to show business. Um, None. Zero. And, and raised in California, which is an advantage. I mean, uh, kids who are raised in Michigan have to, they've got to make some kind of a change generally. Um, but when your parents, when you went off to college and began studying film, what did your family think about that? Well, I went off to college with instructions to become a lawyer. My mother said, look, you have a a big mouth. This is where you belong. And I sort of thought that that was where I'd go. Uh, Like I said, in my freshman year, I was introduced to film in that one class, and I continued to be interested in it. Wasn't sure. Thought about going to law school upon graduation. Uh, Did not really know what I was going to do, so I did the, the very logical thing, which is go to grad school. When you don't know what to do, you go to grad school. And right. I, did, I found a program that gave me an opportunity, I thought, 
to break into the movie business at UCLA. They had an MBA program that was designed, it was called Arts Management, and there were like five of them in the country. And the idea actually was to train managers to be, um, uh, to, excuse me, train people to be managers in the nonprofit arts sector. So that would include museums, ballet, uh, public television. I thought maybe I could use that as an entree into the movie business. Didn't quite turn out that way, but I did go to UCLA graduate school and I did make a connection. It turned out to be a TV guy. And I did my internship, which was part of the program with Jerry Eisenberg, who, of course, you remember, sure. was a major TV movie player of the day. And he was in the TV business and I ended up mostly staying there my entire career. So what, so you're in grad school and you've got this relationship with Jerry Eisenberg. How do you make something really crystallize out of that? Well, the relationship didn't happen just like that. I was in grad school, and I, I had one other thing working for me. I was a good tennis player. And in those days, tennis was very popular in showbiz. Now it's much more golf. But in those days, tennis was an entree. So I was working at the Mulholland Tennis Club as what they called the tennis steward. And I took that job because there were a lot of showbiz people there, hoping I'd meet someone that would uh, get me in. And I met a producer who had a feature in development with Jerry Eisenberg. And he told me that Jerry was an avid squash player and that maybe, you know, if I played squash with him, I could get an introduction. Well, I was a pretty good squash player, too. So I love it. This, so this guy introduced me to Jerry. Jerry and I played squash. He actually beat me, but we connected. Um, told him about the internship, and he offered me the the job, which was six months, and that was in the middle of my MBA. Uh, at the end of the six months, he said, "Look, stay, uh, finish your degree, you know, so you can work you work as much as you can, but then stay." And so I started at the whopping salary of two hundred fifty dollars a week. And that, but that all came out of the relationships that you developed, kind of being around people in the business, basically. I mean, there's networking has never changed. There's different ways we network now. But the, the way you get into anything, especially showbiz today, then, and forever, is networking, hustle, persistence, never giving up. None right. of that ever changes. Just some of the, the venues and some of the places and some of the platforms we use change. So you have an entry-level job. Exactly what were you doing in that job? You know what was cool about Jerry? And we had a big falling out later on in life, uh, later on in a business. But in those days, uh, he, was, um, he was really a classic mentor. He had an MBA from Harvard, so he felt that the combination of artistic instinct, which I, I sort of demonstrated to him, and um, uh, actually, I have to tell you, you'll appreciate this. The way, I forgot. The way I got my job with him, I, I really forgot. We met through squash, but the way I got my job was I had an interview of him that was arranged from the guy at the Millhorn Tennis Club. At the time, Peter Goober, Legendary Peter Gruber was head of production at Columbia, and he taught a class at UCLA Graduate School, something about film, and I was taking the class, and Peter Gruber always was, is, and probably always will be a very flamboyant character, right. and he was really, really, uh, uh, I don't can I say uh, yes. A-S-S-H-O-L-E? He was yes. an asshole. He was a total asshole. 
uh, in class, pompous and, you know, yelling at us and screaming. And, I mean, he taught us good stuff. He brought in the heads of every department, so we really learned a lot about how films are made, budgets, the whole thing. It was all way back before anything was digital or tech. Anyway, I tell Jerry Eisenberg in the first time I meet him, which was pre the squash game, as I now remember, that I was taking a course at UCLA from Peter Goober. What Jerry doesn't tell me is that he and Peter Goober were childhood best friends and sort of rivals. Not literally, but let's just say competitive. Sure. They, were, they, they were good friends, and their wives were good friends. Anyway, I didn't know that Jerry and Peter had this relationship, and I didn't know about playing politics or being nice, so I did this really crazy imitation of Peter Goober in his class, um, which was Peter, Peter, Peter would ask a question, and if people in the class didn't answer right away, with his back to the class, he would go, hello, hello, in the most obnoxious way. <laughs> and so I did that for Jerry. And he died. He said, okay, i got to hire you. If you can get Peter Goober down that good, you've got a job. That was how I got the job with Jerry and later found out that he and Peter were really close. And by the way, I was the only person in Peter Goober's class to get a C. He promised everybody would get a I got a C. <laughs> he promised everybody at the beginning of the semester that you would either get a B or an A, probably a B, very few of you would get A's, but just come, you'll get a B or an A. I got a C. Now, I got a C because I called him out. His final uh, exam included uh, a scenario of getting a movie made. And he said, okay, now take me through all the steps that you would have to do. You bought, you've optioned this book. Now, how do you, what, what is everything you have to do? And he wanted us to outline the whole process and step by step by step. And I I turned it around on him. I said, well, if there's one thing. I said, the first thing I would do is, I, and I gave the very first step, which was really all I thought you could do up to that point. And then I said, if there's one thing I learned in your class is there's no way you could predict what's going to happen next. So to answer any more of this question would just be de defeating itself because you just have to roll with the punches and go where it goes and be prepared. And that was how I answered it. And, of course, that pissed him off, and he gave me a C. Perfect. But, but, you know, in hindsight, you were right. Of course I was right. Of course. Um, but I was also being obnoxious. I should have answered the question, and I was being lazy. Right. Yeah, he, was, he was looking at you as an arrogant young pup. Yeah, I, well, yeah I, he looked at me as him. I mean, that's why I ended up in the business, and probably hardly anybody else in the class did. Sure, sure. You were very cheeky, Bruce. Yeah, now that was inappropriate, and I've been that way ever since. So the gig with Eisenberg, what, what kind of things were you actually doing? He basically allowed me to observe and to come and learn what development was. I had no idea what development was. At that time, I didn't really understand what a producer did versus, say, a director or a writer or an actor, which is pretty obvious to even the layman. So he taught me, really, the basics of development, allowed me to attend many of the meetings that took place at the network. At that time, his first offices were right at CBS Radford in the Valley. So he gave me an opportunity. and. Basically, like everybody else in showbiz, the moment you can do something and prove yourself on your own, you start getting promoted. And I eventually found some ideas, pitched them, and got some deals. And at that point, I got promoted. And uh, I was associate producer on like three or four of the movies, which in those days was not post-production. Now associate producer credit is many times uh, post-production. In that time, it was like junior producer. And I, I was just given that credit, really, just for kind of helping. I was, I was a you know, runaround guy. I mean, I didn't, what do you call it? A, a, a PA, really. Take a quick step backward. Most of our listeners 
uh, some of these terms are are rather esoteric. Define what development means. Ah, okay. Well, see, I didn't know that either, and Jerry taught me. Development includes everything about finding an idea, book, article, one-word idea, three-word idea, and putting it in, a, in some kind of form that you can pitch to people that will buy it, pay for its development, which means script, and then through the script writing process, you hope it will get ordered to film or television. So the development process includes finding things, scouring the universe. In those days, we looked at publishers weekly. You'd read magazines. There'd be a big magazine article in Esquire. Everybody would vie to get the rights. Uh, or you see something in the news, a true story, and you, you write something up, and you call the network and try to pitch it right away. Um, that's development. It's everything. Uh, fine. It's a song title. You hear a song. And you went, which I did once. I bought the rights to the Beach Boys' California Girls and made a movie out of it um, because I knew it evoked a certain feel. And I thought putting that movie on in January when most of the country is dealing with winter would do well. And so we made California Girls. I uh, didn't even know what the heck the story would be. I just thought it was a good hook. In those days, you could sell things that way. Uh, so that's what development is. So it's really the magic of taking a concept, an idea, a notion, and bringing it to reality for the audience. Yeah, it's like this uh, crazy-ass writer once came to me with this idea of uh, doing a series about two wrestlers that become cops. Okay. In one, <laughs> sentence, right, we'll, we'll in one to... sentence, I totally got it. It was right when the WWF was, like, peaking, and, you know, that's how you and I met. So during this time, what kind of a job title do you have? Uh, eventually, I was, like, vice president development at, it was called the Jozak Company, J-O-Z-A-K, which was uh, an acronym for uh, his two kids, Josh and Zachary, I believe. So it sounds like there's a, a serious political element in the kind of career path that you found yourself on. First of all, I think all life is politics, uh, and showbiz is the top of the top of the political thing because, uh, in essence, unlike being a lawyer or a doctor, there's no degree required. I mean, let's not forget the famous, I mean, to me, the greatest example of that is uh, um, John Peters. He was Barbara Streisand's hairdresser, and he became Peter Goober's partner. And he was a good um, hairdresser. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, getting into showbiz is all about networking, a big mouth, chutzpah, um, persistence. Um, in my case, ironically, being in UCLA, being in the graduate program was my ironic entrance. So, in, in fact, my education turned out to be the door opener with Jerry Eisenberg, but maybe I could have been, I could have gotten in just through my tennis game. Who knows? So you're in the junior executive ranks at this point, and you're beginning to work your way up. You wound up, yeah. wor you wound up working for a number of independent producers and ultimately becoming, I believe, the youngest network executive of your generation, right? One of them, certainly. I don't know if I, I was. There was, um, I was 28, 29, no, I was 28 or 27 when I became the uh, director of uh, movies at ABC, and then I was promoted to VP around 29, age 29, 30. Uh -huh. And the context is really important because in those days, let's remember, this is in the, like, basically early 80s, there were only three networks. There was no DVR, VCR, cable, Internet, any of that stuff. ABC, CBS, and NBC did, had 90% of the available audience, which is like triple what any network gets right now. Sure. So being at one of the networks in those days was serious as far as what your impact could be. And my department made you know, upwards of 25 to 30 movies every year, and that means we supervised over 100 projects in development, saw thousands that we heard, 
and I had a staff working for me, and it was it was it was glory days. It was awesome. No, what you're saying is so true. Uh, there were only three networks, only three real opportunities for employment, if you will, uh, in television. Yeah, it was a very uh, small platform on top of a very tall mountain. It wasn't like today where there are what forty outlets. You can go pitch to the guy down the street because he's got a cable station. <laughs> yes. It's true. So uh, so you so you were very very much in a rarefied atmosphere. Did you ever take a moment and think about gee, I wanted to be in movies, not in TV? Oh, all the time. And I was constantly trying to sell movie ideas. And I got a handful of uh, projects uh, sold into development, but none no none went anywhere over my 25 years working in the business. Uh I also recognize that, call it God, call it fate, call it just luck, that my being in television, particularly the television movie business, gave me an opportunity to be much more involved, much more creative, and have much more control than if I had been in the movie business. Because the producer in television, in the TV movie business, was the boss. In film, it's the director, totally, especially a big director. So the producer in the television in the television movie business in those days could see through the entire process. The director was a director for hire, usually left after shooting the film and delivering a first director's cut. They left to go on to their next project, leaving all of the post-production to uh, the producers. So I was what I thought a complete producer. I would find the ideas, sell the ideas, supervise the development, supervise and monitor the production, and then see through the post-production all the way through into the marketing and PR and airing of the product. Well, Most everybody else were you know, for hire for short terms, including the writer. And, and the analogy I often use is like construction and development and building. It's very similar. There's the developer in, business, in construction, and then there's the architect, then there's all the construction crew, then there's the painters and all that stuff. It's very similar to film. So the guy that has the idea that he's going to turn this piece of land into a, a, a commercial shopping center or a, a new houses, that's the analogy to what we do as a complete producer and what we got to do in TV. We well, took, and, and we Bruce, had a vision. What, and Bruce, what you, what you say is so true. Uh, there aren't many feature film producers with more than 30 feature films to their credit, but you found yourself ultimately with that number of actual completed projects. I mean, full-on productions uh, went far beyond just the pitch and development level, but to have a finished product in more than two dozen over a career is phenomenal, and it's really very, very rare in feature films. I mean, one of the it's reasons. It's really I... true. With the exception of a Brian Grazier or a Jerry Bruckheimer right. um, or some of the old time producers, nobody makes a couple dozen films. Exactly. Uh, well, also, the, the, the um, odds of getting projects made in features is so much greater than television. No, t- uh, uh, once you get in the development pipeline, you actually have a reasonable shot. Not in series, but certainly in the television movie business. It was three to one, is basically what I figured out. Of every three projects I had in development, one would usually get made. That's and a, it features it might be thirty or three hundred to one. No, that's a that's a major league. Uh, you'll be in the Hall of Fame with that batting average. Uh, that's why the television movie business was this little little niche that lasted for I don't know thirty years, and I got to be part of it for the majority of my career. So a lot of it, I mean, I believe you you need talent, skill, and luck. What was I was the, lucky. What was the difference uh, from your perspective? between being an outside producer and being a network executive? Oh, wow. Uh, well, I had disdain for the network 
world because I grew up out on the other side. So I, when I'm sure you remember, uh, why am I blank? Len Hill. You remember Len Hill? Sure. Okay. Len Hill was head of movies at ABC. He calls me up when I was 26, 27 and says, I want to hire you to come work at ABC. I pretty much laughed him off. I thought that going to a network was ridiculous. I turned down even the interview. Uh, it wasn't until later that I realized that the network job, especially in those days, would give me a huge platform, a great way to meet other people, amazing amount of power. Um, and I didn't really appreciate it till I got fired and blew my time there. Because um, I think if I had lasted a little longer and if I had worked the politics a little better, I might have ended up you know, doing even better than I had. And I did pretty well when I left. So I, I didn't appreciate the power that the network job had because I wanted my name on the, on the product. I wanted it to say executive producer Bruce Allen, which is the senior credit in TV, as you well know, sure. equivalent to produce by in movies. Um, so if I was at a network, I wasn't going to get actual credit. So I was the executive on the day after the highest rated movie in history, television movie in history, and I have no actual credit. Other people's names went on it, but I helped supervise and make that event happen. So it pains me to not have my name on like that movie, for instance. So, so what I'm hearing, though, is that uh, being at the network, you really have to be the team player and kind of subjugate your, your own name and ego to the, the cause of ratings, basically. Yes. And I, I didn't play politics really well. I was, was a little young. And the same thing that happened to me that happens to far too many people that get successful too young. I became a little bit arrogant, a little bit cocky. And I was told mostly how bad I was after I got fired, not during the time when I could have used it. Because well, I had the power. You, Nobody would tell me the well, emperor had no you, clothes. You might have fired them. <laughs> If they told it again? you. Yeah. Well, or people on the outside that were like my best friend at the time should have told me, but I was buying projects from him. Sure. So he was probably didn't want to tell me because he had this great, you know, pipeline of material because I treated him well. Same thing with Jerry Eisenberg. I paid him back and then some by buying project after project from him when his career was kind of in the doldrums. What I, what um, I, he was a good producer, so I don't think I was doing anything wrong, but why not favor your friends? Well, I think one of the eternal verities of uh, show business relationships is that people never tell you what they're truly thinking to your face. You find it out, <laughs> you find it out later. You find it out long after it could be possibly helpful. Wise words and sad truth. Yeah. Uh, I went through some real scary times when I got fired and I had to then start again. And... Uh, I did have a benefactor in Bill Haber, if you recall him, who got me an exit deal Very well. because he was a friend of mine and, and liked me. Well, Bruce that did. gave me my start. Well, Bill, Bill is the one who brought you and I together because my, um, my initial pitch regarding tag team, and, and we've discussed this on earlier podcasts, so I don't want to bore our listeners, but my initial pitch was to Bill Haber, and it was the same three words that you heard, wrestlers mm -hmm. become cops. Right. And, I, and he just he, he snapped his fingers and said, I know the guy you need to talk to. And the next day, I think you and I had a meeting. Yeah, and we sold that thing pretty quickly. It all, and it went pretty well until uh, our good pal Jeff Katzenberg uh, sabotaged it. Well, that, that's, a, that's a complete episode unto itself, isn't it? <laughs> it sure is, but I don't mind mentioning his name because I can picture him walking down the hall from Bob Iger's office as I'm then called into Bob Iger the day before we're supposed to start production. 
and our show was canceled, and everybody was fired. And uh, that was unbelievable. The day before, Suzanne and I, Suzanne and I were in Madrid, Spain at that time. And I'm thinking, okay, the show starts shooting tomorrow. I just spoken with Roddy Piper on a transatlantic phone call, telling him how proud I was you of were, him. You were on a Zorro. Though. I was on a show called Zorro at the time. And as I recall, they actually had the the wardrobe and prop trucks were loaded, ready to shoot the next morning. Who does oh, that? Yeah, we were all Who ready to go. Who does that? Talk about politics, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. So tell and me, you I'm, know what's interesting? I remember those details really well. It's amazing how you remember. Uh, <laughs> so do I. Really well. So do I. Yeah, that's called dollar bills flying over the horizon. Uh, tell me, of the 30-plus pictures you did, if you could only make one more movie, which movie would you remake? Oh, oh I thought the one that I didn't make. There was one that got away. Well, tell um, us about that, really that one. I want to hear me. that one. Uh, I don't remember the name, but it was, it was a movie that dealt with how uh, – it, it dealt with uh, news and journalism and how it had kind of gone – it was pandering and no longer was relevant. I, it was just a really interesting story that that was about a true life, uh, fictional true life. I mean, it was supposed to be a true life story and how it got perverted and ruined by the news and how it hurt all the people involved. And I, I thought it had a great message. And it, it got a green light at CBS. And that was another case where a friend sort of betrayed me, which is one of the hardest parts of the business. But that script I really wanted to get made. As far as remaking... Off the top of my head, uh, I can only think of one movie that I really stands out for me is uh, one that I really, really adored early, early in my career, and I got to work with some really interesting people. That was called Act of Love, and it was based on a book called Evidence of Love, and it starred an unknown actor by the name of Mickey Rourke in one of his first roles, and a young adult actor who was trying to break out of being a child actor at the time, uh, Ron Howard, before oh, he became oh, a director. Him. Yeah. Whatever, and, happened to, uh, whatever happened to him? I don't know. I don't know. But he hadn't directed anything of note at that point. Um, and uh, Mary Kay Place, who was uh, very big on a nighttime soap. I forgot what it was, a late night soap at the time. For, I'm forgetting for what tonight, it was. I think. And so those are the three stars. And the director was, um, oh, God, his last name's Taylor. I forgot his name. But he was, one, he was an actor who was in The Great Escape, which was one of my favorite movies. And that movie was very, very, very uh, powerful to me. And I made that early, early in my career, uh, like when I was about 26. And I was very, very proud of that one. It won the night. It was on NBC. Um, as far as redoing them, I don't know. There are a couple films I did over the years that involved some special effects, and we just didn't have the, uh, the, the quality of effects. And there was a pilot for a series whose name I actually forgot, and our effects just – actually, I do remember the one. The one – I made the first X-Men movie. It was Generation X, and it was – the idea was uh, to do a series, hopefully, of movies inspired by the junior X-Men because we had a deal at the time with the company I worked with for Marvel. And our – the movie was just so cheap-ass because we didn't have the money. The effect ability, the effects ability at that time to do it well was horrible. Yet it was the first Marvel movie to get made uh, before all the big ones got made later on. And I worked with Stan Lee, and I worked with Avi Arad, and I told them at the time they had all these features in development, Spider-Man and Daredevil and all of them, and I said, I'm going to get a movie on television a hell of a lot faster than any of those features are ever going to get made. They had these projects in development. They thought I was crazy. And in fact, we got Generation X on Fox. It did well. They ordered it as a series, and of course that fell apart because um, the guy who owned New World sold the company and everything got screwed up. Again, another one of those wonderful stories. But well, you, if you I had it to redo... I would love to redo that with the quality of effects 
that we well, have yeah, today. That, I mean, that that movie, that television movie, was almost twenty years ahead of its time. In oh ter- yeah, in terms yeah. of technology, and even where the audience is at today, when those films are really driving box office. Yeah, it was ahead of its time, and what's uh, impressive, I was very what's proud. In, Bruce, what's impressive to me is the contrasting nature of the material that you worked on over the years. I mean, to, to go from Generation X to a Walt on Thanksgiving, that's pretty much a leap. Well, how about Golda? Yeah. How about getting Ingrid Bergman to star in her last movie of miniseries about the birth of Israel? I was in my 20s at that time when I sold that one and got to go to Israel, meet, uh, meet with Prime Minister Begin, uh, General Barlev, and a lot of other people that kind of put me in my place when I realized what they did for a living and what I was doing for a living. Right, right. But there is a connection to all of these projects. I used to choose a lot of what I wanted to make based on people I wanted to meet or places I wanted to go. So I sold three projects over the years set in New Orleans, because, all three of which got made, but only the third one did I finally get to New Orleans because I wanted to go to New Orleans. First project I sold was a ski movie because I wanted to be with skiers and go up and you know, meet some of the world's best skiers. I wanted to go to Israel. I wanted to go to Africa, a lot of other places, China. So I sold projects based on either places I wanted to go. I did three different projects in Italy because I loved Italy. Um, or ideas or themes I wanted to learn about. I love uh, that. That's it, a great way. It's a, it's a, it sounds like you're using the television business as your play thing. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And they paid me. Right. They paid me. Right. Lots of money to have fun, learn, travel. Remember, I didn't get married until I was 39. Wow, so I started so the business single. when I was 21. So the majority of my career was pre-marriage and pre-kids. So you're just you're busy doing all this stuff. So what, what's, uh, what, what do you think the key to all this success was? Your ability to pitch? Yeah, I think uh, salesmanship, persistence. Um, I did. I think I did have a good gut instinct. Uh, look, lasting 25 years is a long time. That's how long I lasted. And mostly, I walked away uh, standing on my own two feet and said, "I've had it." Uh, when television movies were going away and reality TV was taking over. I hated reality TV then. I hate it now. So quickly, quickly. Um, uh, so, so you had this success based upon really salesmanship, enthusiasm. Obviously, mm-hmm. you still have incredible energy. Um, but tell, tell our listeners, when you go into a pitch meeting, how does a successful pitch transpire? What, what do you, well, wa- take, what do you walk in with? Let's take ours. Bob, let's take ours. What did we do to sell um, Tag Team? To ABC. I'm not sure whose idea it was, but we brought Jesse the Body Ventura and Rowdy Roddy Piper in full wrestling regalia into the bloody network. That was great. That's true. We we pretty well brought we the put show on and a put it show. in the lap. Right. Okay, and Stu Bloomberg is looking at us like, what the heck? Yeah. Okay, were... I mean, another one I did that, that ironically turned out odd, but... Um, and, and they ended up making, I had an idea for a series that I didn't. Some writer brought me an idea for a series just like you did, and it was about a wild animal veterinarian. Now, eventually that became a series under a different auspices with Lindsay Wagner. But at the time, uh, they had connection to a wild animal vet, and we got the idea to sell the, uh, we thought we'd go pitch it to NBC, and so I suggested that could we bring a really exotic animal to the pitch. So the wild animal vet brought uh, a baby black spotted leopard. Great idea. NBC. And you should have seen people popping out of their offices as we're walking down the hall with this baby black spotted leopard. So, so what, I, so what I, I'm hearing is there's a little bit of P.T. Barnum showmanship in all of this. You betcha. You, you want to just, betcha. You don't walk in there and just uh, sit down, have a glass of, have a bottle of water, and begin droning out your story. You actually come in with something unique, 
that is memorable, basically where they can't refuse? Well, ideally, not every project lends itself to that. And sometimes the gift of gab is, will work as well. But look, Jerry Eisenberg had a, um, he taught me a lot of good things, but he basically, you need your, your tagline, your logline, whatever. You got to have your idea, especially for a television movie, in a sentence. And he was very proud of the fact that he had once sold a movie with three words. And my goal was to beat him at that. So if you could sell a concept with just a few words, that, like you did with right. the three words you had, wrestlers become cops. I mean, we did more than that, but that was the hook. And you also got to remember the context of when you had that idea. The WWF was huge. Right. So even if you weren't a wrestling fan, you knew what was going on. These wrestlers, Hulk Hogan was huge. Jesse and Roddy were on the lower end of the popularity uh, scale. Exactly. But you said wrestlers become cops, and then you said a new version of the A-team, and then also remember the context, which was there was a big pushback against violence and television. So the context was to do an 8 o'clock show, which in those days they had 8 o'clock shows, right. that would use their wrestling skills rather than guns and shoot them up. Exactly. So it was just the perfect storm of, of timing. So, so, so social trends, media trends, um, what's going on out there aside from television, those things are all brought to bear in these meetings, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Bruce, do you, do you remember a pitch that went bad and you knew it when you're, you were in the middle of it? Yeah, the one with the baby spotted leopard. Tell really? us. Tell really? us. <laughs> okay, this one's classic. Uh, I'm blanking on the executive's name. Uh, I think his first name was Stu, but it doesn't matter. Um, you know how animals have a sense of um, who who is the uh -oh. most vulnerable or weak? Uh oh, yeah. Okay, so this baby spotted leopard, it was really cute. It was the size, maybe 50 pounds. It wasn't big, but it was so exotic and beautiful, 60 pounds. It was the size of like a, um, a golden retriever. And we're in the pitch meeting. And the baby spotted leopard just seems really interested in the NBC executive that we're pitching it to. I notice that he's almost literally sweating. And I'm thinking, what's going on? And we leave the pitch, and we knew something was wrong. Well, we later found out he had a deathly fear of cats. <laughs> <laughs> well, there it goes. So it was a great idea. It obviously failed. I don't think he heard a word we said. Oh, Why funny. he didn't just say, would you mind leaving little pussycat outside? I wish he had, obviously. So he was you know, not, he was not predisposed to the, the show, the, Bruce, the flamboyance Bruce, of this. That's like a scene out of Saturday Night Live. That was great. Oh, absolutely. You could imagine. I mean, yes. they would have made it with him sweating profusely. They would have put a hose under his that's jacket right. and had, had, had him sweat with dripping all over the place. And, and here you are pitching your heart out. <laughs> right, right. And he's just, he's just like, when is this over? When is this over? <laughs> so throughout all these incredible productions... And you worked with some big directors as well, people who became very significant even in the feature film business. Mm -hmm. Which do you, which, let, let, we'll, we'll just talk about directors right now. Uh, Stephen Gyllenhaal, people like that. Who would you like to work with again if you had the opportunity? I'm horrible with names, but the guy who directed my last movie, the last movie I made was the Jesse Ventura story when he became governor right. of uh, uh, Minnesota. His uh, agent at the time, called me up uh, at like midnight and said, did you hear that Jesse Ventura just won Michael uh, Braverman? Remember Michael Braverman? Absolutely. 
he calls me up uh, right after the results were official and said, guess who just won governor? I didn't know he was running at the time. And the next morning I called NBC and sold that movie idea over the phone. And they put a condition on it, which I think is really interesting. Um, they said, we'll make that movie, but we want it on the air in nine weeks. Whoa. Or ten weeks. That's quick. From the, the sale of the idea to on air. And generally, in, and generally in television production, you're lucky to get a treatment in nine weeks. Right. So that meant we basically had to prep a movie without a script, write a script while we're prepping. So we had three to four weeks to write a script, prep a movie, shoot the movie in the three or four weeks that we shot it, and then post-produce it in three weeks. And why, do you, we th- why do you think they wanted it so quickly? There was, a, there was a reason at the time, a slot or whatever. I don't remember. I see. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that was the condition. We said yes. The director's name, his last name was Jackson. I'm forgetting his first name. I think it was David Jackson. It was horrific conditions to try to do it. And ironically, as this was going on, I wasn't sure where my career was going to go at that point. I could sort of think it was probably time for me to bow out. And I was thinking during this production, I'm having so much fun. This director was the most collaborative I've ever worked with. We were working under unbelievably hard circumstances, and we just had a great time. I think we made a darn good little movie under the circumstances. Nothing to write home about, but it was the, the feat of doing it in nine or ten weeks, whatever we did. I don't know if any other movies have been done quite that quickly uh, in television movie history. Did you ever have so, any ambitions to direct yourself? No. I never did because I hated actors, um, and that would be a problem. Now, Bruce, speaking of actors, now you've worked with, well, many, but the likes of Brooke Shields, Ron Howard, Bruce Dern, Jack Lemmon, Bob Foxworth, on and on. Are there any standouts? Ben Affleck in television, which he doesn't put on his resume. He was in a series I did when he was 16. And if you look at any PR about Ben Affleck, there's no mention of the fact that he did a TV series before he started doing movies. Would you please give him Suzanne's cell phone number? Because I can't get her to stop talking about it. Okay. I, I just think he's I'm cute. sorry. Ben Affleck is one of the all-time political idiots there is. So I, I'm not, if I had it, I wouldn't give it to you. The guy opens his mouth about politics. I just want to shove a socket. So any, any standout actors in your mind that you enjoyed working with? Uh, it's more the ones I don't. I have my good Don, my my favorite Don Johnson story. I'd rather well, go the other way. Anything you'd like to share with us would be great. Oh, the, you know, I wrote a um, I wrote a lot of guest blogs over the years, and there's a uh, a website that has uh, it's like a list site, and I'm blanking on the name of it. I can find it out for you later. But I wrote um, my uh, ten best uh, or ten best or worst moments in showbiz, and one Love of them it. was about Don Johnson. And I, my, the first movie I ever produced was Ski Lift to Death for CBS. I was 23 turning 24, and we're in Banff from Lake Louise. And Don Johnson was an unknown actor. This was way before Miami Vice. I think he was either married to, with, or his girlfriend was Melanie Griffith in those right. days. He was a gigantic douchebag. Okay, I mean, he just total P-R-I-C-K, everything negative you could think. He thought he walked on water, and he was an unknown actor at the time. We had other really lovely actors in the picture. Deborah Raffin was in it, who was a big TV movie star. Um, uh, who else did we have in it? Veronica Hamill, who was in um, uh, Hill Street Blues. It was a nice ensemble cast, and he was no, 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 nobody important. Susie Chaffee was the one that I had the hots for. She was the big skier of the day, and she did our stunts and was really a character. I remember um, her. Sure. Anyway, 
Uh, it was disco time. This was 1977-78. Disco was the rage, and all the actors at the end of the shooting would hang out at one of the bars, discos, and um, I get a call because Don Johnson had, was hitting on some girl at one of the, the discos, and the guy, a guy near him says, hey, buddy, you know, back off. And Don Johnson picks a fight with the guy who turns out to be a Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman. Ah, uh, not good. Don, John, Don Johnson is now thrown in jail. Uh, I get a call as a 24-year-old producer that uh, one of my actors is in jail. Oh, my god! And it's the only time I ever used my MBA. I went to the judge, and I explained to him the, the concept of money, uh, the money that we spend benefits the community. There was some technical term that every dollar we spend is worth $10 of the community. I said, look, do me a favor. I know you're, you want to prosecute the guy. Just give me Don during the day. I only need him for three more days. You can have him in jail at night, and then you can what? do whatever you want. So the judge agreed. We finished shooting. The moment the dailies were cleared on that last day, Don Johnson fled the country, and I have no idea if he's ever been back to Canada since. Now, Bruce, what was it like for him as an actor to perform during the day knowing he's going to go back to jail? Oh, he was not happy with me. He was not happy with me. <laughs> How was his but, performance? You know, it, it was it was what it was. I mean, it was a silly little movie, so it didn't really matter. It wasn't like anything important. But for me, it was fun because I got to go ski with the world's best skiers, all the stunt people, and I got to go helicopter skiing in the Bugaboos right afterwards. And so, if you if you had the opportunity to work with a particular uh, talent again, who would it be? Well, obviously, I'd want to do a series with you. Well, uh, please. We're going to cut that. No, out seriously, too. you're a gentleman and a scholar. <laughs> you know, for me, it's not about the the quality of the name. Okay, uh, okay, yes, I'm kissing your ass a little, but but I do genuinely like you. And our collaboration was fun, and it was a collaboration, just yeah. like it was with the director on the Jesse Ventura story. Which which brings us to something. You have really reinvented yourself over the last several years, and become quite a touchstone for parents, particularly fathers. But parents and families, uh, really worldwide, you've published two books now. You've got, I think you're the one of the number one uh, Twitter accounts in the world. You have uh, hashtag Dad Chat on a. It's at least weekly, isn't it? Yeah, it's every week, but it's a twenty four seven hashtag. There's 100, 200 tweets a day, and two or three thousand on Thursdays. So, uh, and we're going to get upward close to two billion impressions this year. So it, it's big. Congratulations! That's, right that's that's phenomenal. That's fabulous. You should be very proud. So what ins- what, are, what inspired you to create a dad's point of view and to begin writing these columns and books and do a radio show and all that? Well, one thing led to another, and that's another story. But it all began when I was uh, going through a very ugly divorce. Uh, I quit the show business. My I had two small kids. Uh, my wife uh, left almost literally left and disappeared. And I was taking care of my boys. How old were your dealing boys? Dealing with a divorce. They were six and nine. Wow, they were lo- When young. she left. Yeah. Yeah. And we had moved, so I in a brand new area, didn't know a lot of people. And this is about 12 years ago. And I was 24-7 taking care of my boys. And uh, I, I got to, at the elementary school, they were both in an elementary school, I got the same sort of question from all the moms and all the dads uh, about my life. And it was very, very revealing, and it's what motivated me to write. The women, all the moms, knowing that I am the full-time stay-at-home dad to my two boys whose mother has left, because she was never seen 
at the campus. I was the one that was always at the school volunteering and stuff. So they all knew that the, my, my ex-wife worked. I wasn't working, and I was a stay-at-home dad, which was pretty unusual. So all the moms, after she left, they asked me, so Bruce, what do you do all day? Now, I thought to myself, I was too weak and a little too burnt out and a little too uh, uh, vulnerable at that time to say what I should have said, which is, what the heck do you do all day? What do you mean? What kind of question is that? I'm busy with my kids. You know, I'm taking care of them. Their, their mother's left. Instead, I kind of just stammered an answer. The dads all asked me their own question, which is, so Bruce, when are you going back to work? Oh, As if what I was doing had no value. So I realized there was not a voice out there. This is only 12, 14 years ago. This is around 2000, actually. There was no voice out there for the dads. And so I started writing a local column. It all grew from there. But that was my impetus. I was so outraged at these kind of questions and the lack of support I got. All the moms would support any other mom whose husband had left. You're right. You're right about that. They were sure as hell not supporting me. And at the same time, I was taking care of my ill and ultimately dying parents. So I was busy and dealing with all the, the joys of a divorce with all the joys of California divorce lawyers. So it was not a pleasant time in my life, and I was amazed at the, the foolishness that came out of these moms and dads in an upscale community, too. They're not, like, uneducated. How could they In that role of a single dad with two young kids and what that really entails – you were actually busier then than you ever were as a producer. Absolutely, and and more scared than I ever was. I was scared to death, especially during the divorce phase. The kids were my life. If, if God forbid, I got some idiot judge that gave my ex-wife, who was a loon, full custody, and that kind of stuff could have happened. Sure. So I was terrified, let alone all the bills I was getting from the, the rape, raping lawyers that charged unbelievable amounts of money. Oh, yeah. So tell me, I, how, I, mean, how, I, I call family court and family lawyers anti-family court and anti-family lawyers because they're not about family. Family court is not money. about family. Sure. It's all about destroying the family. So, so you published a book, A Dad's Point of View. The book was really a compilation of my first hundred columns. I took the best of my first hundred columns, grouped them into categories, rewrote them, uh, created a... Uh, um, each chapter had kind of a, a synthesis of what the theme of, of the columns was. And then at the end, I did a, kind of the top t- 10 takeaways from the, the book. So if you didn't want to read the book, just read these five pages. These are the things you should remember and were the, my best tips on how to be the best parent you could be. And you, you had had some very early experience in your show business career having written a column that really made things happen for you. <laughs> well, thank you, Bob, for doing your homework. That was, the old, that was the first piece of writing I ever did. Um, I, wrote a column, I wrote an article for the Producers Caucus, which was at the time there was this horrible trend of, I called it, movies used, the TV movies used to be called Movie of the Week. And there was this horrible trend of every true life murder story. Um, the networks would rush to put on uh, these stories about some true life uh, murder. And I think Amy Fisher was the one that, that was the peak of it when all three networks were... Uh, rushing to get theirs on the air, and all three networks aired a movie about Amy Fisher. That's right. And I thought this was disgusting. And I wrote an article called Murders of the Week, and I traced the history of what I thought was a noble art form, which is a television movie, which did a lot of wonderful stuff in the early days, because TV movies in the early days took on subjects that features wouldn't take, like rape, 
famous movie, Case of Rape, with Elizabeth Montgomery. Adam, the movie about the missing kid. A, bur- right. a burning, Incest, a burning, about Amelia. A burning um, bed, Brian's song. Exactly. Exactly. There were so many, and these movies changed public opinion about rape in, in that case. Changed the fact that there are kids' pictures on milk cartons was a function of Adam, or uh, Moms Against Drunk Drivers, the MAD organization. The whole reversal of thinking about uh, driving under the influence was a function of a television movie that got everybody talking. That's right. That's what the legacy was. And now we're making these horrific reality TV-like murders of the week. And I was incensed, and I wrote this article, which was then excerpted uh, on the back lot uh, in the Daily Variety. The back lot is the last page, at least right. in the days when I read the paper. Um, and it got a lot of attention, and I think started the reversal back to a little bit more quality topics. Well, I think it was a real slap in the face to the community who became, who suddenly realized they had a responsibility, and they became. That's a, what I felt. I felt I could have fun in what I was doing and maybe do some good. Right, right. I think it really opened a lot of eyes and made people kind of step back and kind of reconsider programming directives, which was obviously. You know, when I was at ABC. I instructed my staff that I would not hear any movie that didn't have some redeeming value to it. And some of the producers really got mad. I had no interest in anything that was had violence at its core, and I wouldn't make it. And it was just, and I, Brandon Stoddard, to his credit, allowed me to do what I wanted to do. And I, you know, so they made those movies at other networks or pitched them that, elsewhere. That's interesting. Maybe, maybe, really that's why, maybe that's why you and I have been friends for so long, because when I, I was brought on to a lot of cop shows, with shows with inherent violence, and... Uh, when I did, oh gosh, between Zorro and Soldier of Fortune and a number of shows that had potential for great violence, I always thought that violence was such an easy way for a hero to solve things and pushed myself and a writing staff to do better than that. And I think that there was a period of time there in television when that really wasn't true. I yeah. agree. And yeah. um, uh, I think that's why we immediately connected on Tag Team. Yeah. A way to do an action show without... You know, being gratuitous, and actually, the whole idea of that was to have fun and be a little silly. Uh, it wasn't; we weren't taking ourselves seriously. This was not going to change the world, but you know, it did show that there's another way to take care of uh, a situation. So, Bruce, uh, what are your thoughts about television these days? Well, there's television is really terrific these days. I mean, a lot of it is really, really, really good. But I'm troubled by the dark side. There's such dark drama is obviously doing incredibly well. So my son, who's now 18, turned me on to insisted I watch Orange is the New Black. And he also wanted me to watch. It's a big show. Huge show. So I've watched all of the first two seasons. And at the end of watching the second season, I, I said to my son, I'm done. There's not a single redeeming character in this series. Every single person. In or out of the prison, in one way or the other, is it dark, ugly, mean, troubled, disturbed? Why do I want to watch that? Then he said, well, one of the greatest new series on TV, the one of the great, you've got to watch the pilot of Gotham. So I watched about half of it, and it was just so dark. Right. So I just don't like that stuff. On the other hand, there are, I think, drama series, there are some amazing things on television. I really just don't watch much TV anymore. I just don't like the dark side. Um, I did. I do like Modern Family. Uh, I liked Glee in the beginning before it got a little too over the top, um, right. politically correct, and the uh, you know every permutation of every kind of relationship was being promoted except uh, uh, heterosexual couples. Um, so 
But I thought it was really creative, and the singing and the acting in that show I thought was amazing. Look, all these uh, uh, cable station series, uh, whether it's um, House of Cards, so many. I mean, these things, are, they look amazing. Look what they're doing, the production values, all the HBO series. I hate to say it, but I love The Sopranos. Talk about violence. But it was so well-written and so well right. done. And, and, char- and character really drove that show to a great degree. Yes, yes. So, I mean, so I, I can't say that. The thing about television, as you said earlier, you know, there's like 40 different outlets that you could go to now. Right. So even though there's a lot of ugliness in TV, there's so much good stuff. It's just so, so I, Bruce, I'm not part of it anymore. Sure. So you're, if your 18-year-old son comes to you and says, Dad, I really want to get into the business and follow in your footsteps, what's your advice? My, my older son, uh, his primary interest is music. And I think he still wants to get into producing, making, or performing. He's very, very, very talented musically. He's sort of interested in the television film business, but he's really much more interested in music. And we went to a party in Malibu uh, several years ago, and we met uh, this producer. He's a music producer. He's one of the most famous music producers. Rick Ross. Rick Ross or Rick Rosen. I I forgot what it is. Something like that. He's like gigantic. He used to be gigantic physically. He was a big, 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 big man. There's no bigger name. He has a long, long, long beard. Do you know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. There, There is no bigger name. Okay, okay. So I, being the bashful guy I am, I see him at this party, which had a lot of celebrities. We're at in Malibu. Um, my son's girlfriend's grandfather was like this big star in Malibu. I mean, he's just a character, and he had these big parties. And so we went to this party, and I see Rick Rosen there. And my son's there, and I nudge my son. That's Rick Rosen. And go over and introduce yourself. Well, my son at that time was a little bashful, so I went over. And I introduced myself, and I brought my son over, and I said, so, Rick, what, would, what, would, what is the advice that you would give uh, somebody who wants to break into the music business? And what he said is, is the answer to your question. He says, look, nobody really listens to demo tapes anymore. So your job, he was talking to my son, Arnie, your job now is to build your following. You can use, uh, I think MySpace was still happening at the time, uh, and it became much more of a music venue. Build your following on MySpace. Get your, your videos up on YouTube. Get your own following. Then we'll find you. That's what you have to do today. So because of technology, you want to be in the film and television business? Anybody can make a movie. Anybody can make a little TV show. So get your GoPro or whatever it is, or your iPhone 6, which has amazing HD quality, and go shoot a two-minute something that gets attention. Learn social media. Do what I did. Just get out there in every form. I started with that column. I work in more forms of new and old media than any other parent blogger I know. I, wrote a com- I write a comic strip. I do a weekly video. I have moral question of the week. I have four blog series. I write books. I give speeches. I had a radio show for four and a half years. I have Dad Chat, which is the biggest parent chat on Twitter. Do everything you can in your world, and eventually, if it's destined, you'll get noticed. But don't just sit there waiting for it to happen. Funny, they, they never seem to come and knock on the door, do they? <laughs> Look, some of these things go viral. I, I, when I, you know, I'm a skier. I love to ski. So last season, I spent the winter in Park City, and I, I just put out about 20 ski videos. And one day I'm skiing, and the sun is behind me, and as I'm skiing, I wear the GoPro around my chest. Not on my helmet, on my chest, because it's a better view. I you must be a good skier. He, oh, he's a I'm a crazy-ass skier. So... Um, I'm the oldest guy in the pipe. I do the half pipe and I get air in the super pipe. Wow. So I have a, my favorite video that I have is called the old man in the pipe. No, aren't you that old guy in the pipe? So look up. Aren't <laughs> you that it, old guy it. in the pipe? 
Okay, it's fun video. But anyway, one day I'm skiing and the sun's behind me and I see my and nobody's on the mountain and I see this incredible long shadow as I'm going down the hill. So I took a bunch of video and I cut together a little video and it was called the Shadow Skis. And it got 5,000 views. Wow. My other videos got 20, 40, 100. So I figured, okay, well, it must be something to do with the shadow. So I did a second video, the Shadow Skis again. And it got two views. So there's something out there. Why does one get 5,000 views or 5 million? And that's something you have to find out, right? You find out, you play, you experiment. I wrote a column called Money, Money, Money. I was inspired by the Cabaret song. And it got thousands upon thousands upon thousands of views. Well, obviously, money was the key. That word was a key word that really worked at that time. I did several other columns with money in the title. None quite got as big as that big one. But you do enough stuff, and some of them will connect. You'll get, the, you'll get noticed by somebody. But you have to be, you have to nowadays, what, like Rick Rosen said, you have to generate it. You have to get some small following, and they can see, ah, this could be bigger. Well, that's great. That's great advice. Bruce, as we wrap this up, tell us where people can access all of your content now from a dad's point of view and dad chat. Well, my website is brucesallon.com, S-A-L-L-A-N. Uh, dad chat, you just use the hashtag dad chat um, anytime, 24-7, but we meet so to speak, virtually every Thursday night at 6 p.m. Pacific time, 9 p.m. Eastern time, and people from all over the world participate live. I get great guests, sometimes big sponsors. Sometimes we give away sets of tires. Sears Auto sponsored. We gave away a set of tires. Samsung sponsored, and we gave away uh, um, cameras and tablets. So sometimes I have great giveaways. I often have great guests. Uh, Billy Ray Cyrus was a guest when he had his song duet with uh, Dionne Warwick. We had like 1,200 teeny boppers that were on Dad Chat that night. It was hysterical. That must have been fun. It was fun. It was really fun. I mean, and he was quite, quite uh, generous. Uh, and, and, your book, that's, and your book, Amazon? My books are on Amazon. You just go to my website. Um, and follow me on Twitter, at Bruce Allen. I mean, that's I'm on Twitter all the time. I, I've... Uh, I've been on Twitter three and a half years, and I average about 75 tweets a day, every day since I've been on. So, I, so, my, my, so my question is, why are you so lazy? My <laughs> God, are you busy? My gosh. And my comment is, thank you for taking the time out to speak with hey, us. Hey, Bruce, this has been terrific. Uh, you are an inspiration. Your stories are phenomenal. Uh, we'll have to do this again. And I have a list of actors and actresses I want you to comment on, but we'll save that for another time. Be happy to, and I'm looking forward to seeing you for lunch next week. You got it. All and right. I want some of that energy. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Bruce. All right, man. Take care. Thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Wow. All I know is I want to eat whatever Bruce is eating or take whatever pills he takes. What kind of energy is that? He's great. He's an in-your-face kind I of guy. It. I love it. Exactly. Love it. Thanks again, Bruce, for doing that. Hey, before we go, I want to remind everybody... To go to our website, take a look at our book, Where Hollywood Hides, Santa Barbara, Celebrities in Paradise. It's a terrific read. Holidays are coming up. It's a great holiday book. Hardcover, full color. And it's great for tourists. You call it a coffee table book. I call it an any kind of table book. Well, it's the kind of book that I would love to pick up at somebody's table and thumb through and take right, a look. Right. Got a lot of photos of uh, major celebrities and kind of a tribute to them and to the history of Santa Barbara with relationship to Hollywood. So take a look at it. It's on the website. We're HollywoodHides.com. Also, I want to remind you, we have a number of 
fantastic sponsors, one of which is Wine.com, America's number one online wine retailer, where they offer thousands of wines, wine gifts, accessories, club discounts, and even free shipping, which is a big deal when you're shipping something as heavy as wine. Wine.com has expertise. They've been on the online for over 10 years. They have thousands of wines from all over the world to choose from. They have incredible quality. Uh, a lot of their stuff is rated very highly by Wine Spectator and Robert Parker's Wine Advocate. And you'll find direct links to everything at wine.com, including their discounts at wherehollywoodhides.com, our website. So go to wherehollywoodhides.com, click on the wine.com banner, and check out those incredible prices, great service, and the selection that's unparalleled. You know, after our years of working on Falcon Crest together, you and I, we know quite a bit about wine. Yes, we do. We know what goes into a good glass of wine. So uh, just encourage listeners, if whether you're a casual wine drinker or a certified wine snob like Suzanne, you'll find the best wine.com values through the links at wherehollywoodhides.com. Are you calling me a drunk? No, I'm calling you a wine snob. You won't drink the stuff I'll drink. I'll drink anything. True. And you say, oh, I'm sorry. I don't like the color of that cork. You you bring me up in the world. That's all I can say. Again, take a look at wherehollywoodhides.com. You'll find show notes, uh, some great pictures of Bruce Salen, and uh, links to his websites at uh, Dad Chat and... You know something I forgot to ask, Bruce? What? He mentioned he was attending college at the age of 16. Yeah. What was he, boy genius? Well, you can tell by listening to that interview. He's a pretty He's smart guy. pretty smart guy. Next time, I'll ask him. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, thanks again, Bruce. It's been terrific. This is Bob McCullough. And this is Suzanne Herrera McCullough. We'll see you next time. See you at the movies. And today's music is provided by Chance McCullough. You can find more of his original soundtracks at chancemccullough.com. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star rating and a quick comment or review at iTunes forward slash for Hollywood Heights. Those reviews really do help get the word out. And drop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash where Hollywood hides and hit that like button.